people's lives get c- completely turned upside down. And then if the result of that trial is that they're found not guilty, um, what a waste, what a complete and utter waste of um, this human's um, time and energy and how frustrating for them to have to start all over from scratch. I think that reality is so often overlooked. Okay, so now welcome to part two. Previously on Six Feet Apart, we talked about a background information on how Canadian and American federal courts work. We talked about the day-to-day changes from the perspective of from the perspective of two judges and an advocate for reintegrating formerly incarcerated people back into society, jury trials and the public's willingness to serve on jury trials and the benefits of having online trials and hearings. Welcome to part two. Welcome back. So now we are transitioning into the effects on incarcerated individuals. One of the biggest issues is their right to a speedy and fair trial, which includes the right to have a representative jury. Um, Judge Lynn talks about how she was able to get a racially representative jury during her two trials that she's had during this time. Um, But there still remains a concern about technology access for remote proceedings. So when she has online trials, how is she going to be able to get people who might not have access to technology? And this is what she has to say. Now, there's no question about the fact that the demographics would indicate that a higher percentage of our minority populations do not have either devices or uh, internet. And so I'm going to have to either get devices and a hotspot to them, and I don't know how I'm gonna pay for that, or I will make the courthouse available to them and supply uh, devices here in a room where they can access the internet and they'll be well spaced out. So that is a concern. <laughs> um, okay. So to give a little wait, wait bit, did you yeah. talk about how we're going to address it? Like, will there will they be given um, government computers, or like just to like to fill in the gap of not having technology or not? Like, well, I know like for a lot of schools, they're doing that where they give people laptops just to use over a certain amount of time. Yeah. So she doesn't know yet. She has, um, a online trial scheduled for March, I believe of next year. And so she has a good chunk of time to figure out how to do this. But yeah, I think it is comparable to the situation with schools and people who don't have access to technology because they still need to be involved in this essential activity of being on a jury. So Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, To give a bit of 
to give a bit of background information about the speedy trial right within the U.S., it's all governed by the Speedy Trial Act, which states that there cannot be more than 30 days between an arrest and an indictment, or more than 70 days between an I hate this word, between an arraignment, which is where the defendant either pleads guilty or not guilty to charges, mm. and their trial. Um, however, it leaves room for exceptions within these deadlines when the ends of justice served by continuing those time periods don't outweigh the interests of the parties and the public in a speedy trial. So basically, right now, when the ends of justice don't outweigh the health concerns of spreading COVID. Um, so this is what Judge Lynn says about trying to deal with this issue. So uh, people who are in custody who want to go to trial are in the forefront of my mind. Um, but again, uh, there are a number of factors that we have to consider. The last trial I had uh, was scheduled uh, just at the time that we shut the court down in March. Mm -hmm. And the defendant was in custody and he wanted to go to trial and I was determined to give him a trial as soon as I reasonably could and that's what I did. And I found it uh, critically important to give him a trial as soon as I could safely do so uh, because he wanted to go to trial and he was in pre-trial custody, having been convicted of nothing. So yeah, I think judges especially want to prioritize the people who are awaiting their trial because currently they have not been convicted of anything. They are not criminals. They are just arrested individuals. And, you know, we got to do the due process of law and stop messing with their lives. Yeah, I think that. Oh wait, we're. Um, I was gonna get into it later, but when you're talking about messing with people's lives and all that stuff, a good like way to, to way to look at it is that. I guess we we believe our lives are on halt right now because of COVID nineteen, but we can't really wait for anybody to do anything. So we still have to keep working about it. But in this, when you're in the prison system, your life isn't on, an on halt. And that's something we're going to talk about later in terms of our humanity and whether we're, we're treated with empathy and like support and something that maybe the government or judges in the legal sector overlook. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we can say that they overlook it. I think it's just like, as we've heard, it's very difficult to be able to have a trial at this time. So yeah, it's like the battling concerns of the health side of it and then the individual human side of it. And yeah, it's just a very difficult situation. Um, so for the Canadian perspective, uh, there's also the same speedy trial right. Um, it's technically you have 18 months 
to get the trial done in a provincial court and 30 months to get it done in a superior court trial. And this is Justice Manson talking about that. In this world that we're now living in with COVID, uh, there's a real push to make sure that somehow with the Zoom world, um, we get that access to justice in a, in a more expedient and, and fair way. Uh, but we certainly have a, 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 an edict up here from the Supreme Court of Canada that says if you don't let accused get to trial in a requisite period of time that's fair, um, the case will be thrown out. And that's happened across the country um, where uh, accused, uh, alleged you know, uh, accused have, have walked because they haven't been able to get access to justice. So there's a real uh, push to have more judges, have a, a better way to deal with it in terms of pre-criminal proceedings. So yeah, obviously right now during COVID-19, it's kind of seen as an exceptional circumstance to this ruling, but it could become more relevant as everything is opening up and we have this backlog of cases. Um, if judges are not able to do their due diligence in an effective, efficient manner, then uh, people who are awaiting their trial do have grounds in a way to sue the government because they're not getting their trials quickly enough. Um, but thinking about it from a defense lawyer's perspective, Judge Lynn had this to say. The least anxious group, I'm not speaking scientifically when I say this, mm -hmm. uh, so I'm limiting my comments to my limited experience, but in that limited experience, the group least anxious to go to trial is, seems to me to be criminal defense counsel, mm -hmm. because they are very concerned about whether their clients can get a fair trial under these circumstances right. um, and they don't want to wear masks themselves they think that minimizes their own effectiveness uh, they don't want their clients to wear a mask um, and I think uh, defense counsel are particularly concerned uh, with african-american defendants being required to wear a mask because of stereotypes uh, but i think generally defense counsel are concerned about defendants generally wearing masks um, they certainly don't want witnesses to wear masks and i agree with that mm -hmm. so i have required that uh, that witnesses remove their masks when they testify, but they're behind plexiglass when they are testifying. Um, and they just think that people will be so concerned for their own safety that they will hold that against the defendant. Yeah, it's hard to, but it's like, it's hard to think about it because when you use technology, you can see that someone's face, but it's so impersonal. But then when you're in person, you have to, um, take precautions to protect yourself and that can seem really impersonal impersonal as well so it's like which one is better or least or least impactful? Least yeah that's really sad to think about 
Yeah. I think especially with the racial implications of it as well. Um, unfortunately, in the U.S. and in Canada, like black men have been associated with crimes. And when you have the visual of a black man wearing a mask, juries might be more inclined to sway towards convicting that person or someone else, um, another racial minority. And that's just like another barrier that defense lawyers have to think about for their, for their clients. Okay. So now shifting over to COVID-19 in jails. So first we asked the judges about their perceptions of what's happening in jails, and then we'll get into more of what is happening on the ground. So Judge Lynn gave her perspective. Nobody contemplated that uh, defendants would be subject to uh, increased health risks because they are incarcerated. But at the same time, I think judges recognizing uh, the nature of criminal conduct have not uh, released great substantial numbers of defendants, although we all wish uh, they were not uh, being subject to uh, enhanced risk because of uh, the fact that they're incarcerated. But there's not much we can do about that. Right. Yeah, there's the separation there between whose responsibility is it. Well, there are plenty of cases over the years where federal judges have been involved with issues related to uh, how prisons have been run. Mm -hmm. But with respect to this crisis, um, the appellate courts have not been uh, much amenable to uh, federal judges micromanaging this crisis. Yeah, so then this is what Justice Manson has to say about his perceptions of it from the Canadian side similar, I think, to the United States is that we've had a number of people released uh, early who, for lesser crimes uh, because of the concern within prisons of COVID spread. And we've had uh, some significant COVID spread issues in the prisons across Canada. Um, and so there, there is a real awareness of that and the problem with it. Uh, but aside from looking at earlier parole, earlier release, where uh, the crimes aren't as serious. Um, I'm not aware of other things that are happening, but there's there certainly has been a concern about the spread within the prison population because of the inability to have social distancing and, and do what is necessary. When I, when I first heard that these judges were kind of like, there's nothing we can do, I was like, are you sure? Like, there has to be something. And... I think it's honestly really true coming from a judge's perspective because the judges don't make policy. Like it's up to the executive branch in the U S and in Canada to regulate what's happening with it within the prisons. So a judge can't really step in and be like, I mandate that social distancing happens. What judges can do, which uh, justice Lynn talked about is a compassionate release for prisoners who like might have heightened risk um, or for people who had less serious crimes. But even that has to be supported from within the prison system. Like the warden or whoever's controlling the jail has to 
um, approve that release um, request. So I really want to figure out what can be done about this if the judges can't play a big role in it. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that since judges are, they judge, so they ha- they quite they quite literally have the final say. But it's just that the system, the legal system, is so much more than just them. There's so many people running it and behind it to make it work as efficiently as possible. Okay, so according to the Prison Policy Initiative article titled jails and prisons have reduced their populations in the face of a pandemic efforts to reduce jail population has slowed down and even reversed in some cases 71 percent of jails had population increases from may 1st to july 22nd and according to the same website another article titled since you asked is social distancing possible behind bars a direct quote says COVID-19 is hammering cruise ships and nursing homes because social distancing is impossible. Incarcerated people are living in comparable, if not smaller quarters, but with a notable, with a notable difference on cruise ships. Oh my gosh. On cruises and in nursing homes, people have in-room access to the necessary hygiene products and water, something that is often missing in correctional facilities. According to Business Insider, an article titled COVID-19 Pandemic Crisis Illustrates Need for Prison Reform in America, confinement is the antithesis of social distancing. Cells are small. Supplies like soap and masks are scarce. Testing is inadequate. Sharing showers and common areas are natural. Are natural COVID incubators. If all this isn't bad enough, those who contract the virus are infrequently are frequently placed in solitary confinement because prisoners have nowhere else to quarantine them. And that is very scary just to put them in solitary confinement with no with no treatment. Something that Kim Yasir also mentions is how prisoners feel actually experiencing this COVID-19 while still being in prison. This is what some incarcerated people have to say about their sense of safety while in prison. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are sharing, who, incarcerated people who are sharing that they feel like um, they don't, their, their, their health, um, like their right to being a healthy person um, is, is at, is is at risk right that they're um um yeah that their safety is is in jeopardy um and solitary confinement also messes with your psyche as well mm-hmm. like having nobody to talk to nobody to turn turn to quite literally being isolated just cut off because of quarantining or the contraction of a disease that is definitely very scary and a study finds that wait according to ctv news jails can spread coronavirus to nearby communities in this study so inmates going in and out of chicago's cook county jail appear to have carried the infection as they went 
the researchers reported in the journal Health Affairs. So not only do you have to be quarantined, you need to be treated adequately as well, because it's not like the prison is just isolated from different communities. There are people who work inside the prisons who go in and out, as well as the, the actual released prisoners or released former prisoners. So this is really something to think about. It can't really blow over just by using solitary confinement. We can't forget about these people in prisons mm-hmm. because they are community members. And if that's yeah. not enough for you, like they also pose a risk to your own safety in that these prisons are spreading COVID as well. So if not for the sake of humanity, think about it for the sake of your own personal health. Yeah. So according to prison policy initiative, there are five ways the criminal justice system can slow the pandemic. So number one, reduce the number of people in local jails. State leaders must remember that local jails are even less equipped to handle pandemics than state prisons. So it is even more important to reduce the burden of a potential pandemic on jails. Generally speaking, there are two ways to reduce jail populations, reduce admissions and release more people. So for reducing admissions, this may be the simplest strategy that would show quick results because of the high turnover in jails. If a typical jail stopped admitting people entirely, its population would be cut by 54% in just seven days. More realistically, if that same jail could reduce admissions just by a half, its population would be more than 25% smaller in a week. And then when it comes to releasing more people, jail administrators can also accelerate releases of people currently in custody. And in situations where administrators and sheriffs may not have the authority to do this on their own, they're still well positioned to suggest it to the courts. Wait, but weren't you saying before that the that the judges can't do anything? The judge is the one who approves releasing people early, but the warden, like the prison warden, has to also approve it. Oh, I see. So I guess this um, is where it comes into play. Right, like compassionate release, they can do that, or they can reduce someone's sentence, but... Like, this is the one thing they can do. Okay, yeah. Okay, the second suggestion is to reduce the number of people in state and federal prisons. Uh, This could be done through restrictions to admissions and most most drastically, most dramatically, by increasing releases. Okay, the simplest way to reduce admissions is to refuse admissions for technical violations of probation and parole in parole rules. In 2016, 60,000 people were returned to state prison for behaviors that for someone not on probation or parole would not be a crime. So number three, eliminate unnecessary face-to-face contacts for justice-involved people. So the criminal justice system makes it difficult for people on probation, parole, and registries and and the staff of those systems. The practice that social distancing necessary to practice the social distancing necessary to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And number four, make correctional... Well, well there are five. <laughs> make, number four, make correctional health care humane and efficient in a way that protects both health and human dignity. Okay, number five, don't make this time more stressful for families or more profitable for prison telephone providers than absolutely necessary. So, okay, we can just summarize this. Like, Mm -hmm. communication is free. Everybody has a cell phone, and they usually 
um, make calls, video calls, emails. But in the prison system, you actually have to work towards those privileges. And when you work, you're working in harsh conditions for low pay just to be able to call your wife. Right. Really? And in normal times, there would be visitation, mm-hmm. which I don't know if that's a privilege that you have to earn. I feel like not really, but I'm uneducated, so I'm not sure. But because of COVID, the visitations have mostly been suspended. And so we should be compensating for that by just giving people access to Zoom or a phone call. Like, it seems like if they already had this right before, why are we eliminating it now, especially when people are most wanting to be in touch with their loved ones? Yeah, and it's definitely why there's a lot of push to reform the prison systems because people equate it to modern day slavery where you're working in harsh conditions in order to keep the maintenance of the prison up. Some people work in house in like their own. Some people work to maintain the conditions of their prison. That's already really taxing to other people. So who are you really helping? And you're putting a, you're putting them in a situation where not only are they being incarcerated, but they actually have to work in order to be there. It's definitely something that's that people are questioning whether it's humane or not. Right. So something that Kim Yasir brings up is about how COVID highlights pre pre-existing inadequacies in the criminal justice sector. And she just mentions how there were a lot of inadequacies before, but now they're exacerbated. And this is what she says. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> so with reentry, everything feels inadequate, to be honest. Like, it takes months to, to get into mental health treatment um, because there's often a backlog. Um, it takes, um, uh, it in terms of like getting the finance, your fine one's finances in place in order to have housing, like everything just takes a really, really long time. And there's never enough. There's not enough of the affordable housing. There's not enough counselors. There's not enough um, uh, employment opportunities that um, give someone an opportunity to grow. Um so everything honestly just feels inadequate from the beginning. So of course COVID um, does uh, make all of that even more clear. So she highlights how prison systems don't treat people humanely and there's little to no respect about the personal lives. So I wanted to bring up the question, is that rightfully so to not respect a person's life because of a crime? Yeah, it's a deep question. It's a hard question. Um, One that I'm not prepared to answer at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday. But I think, at least in the U.S., we have these constitutional rights. um, And a lot of those rights still apply when you are imprisoned. Although we know about, like, the right to vote is taken away after that, which I think after educating myself recently about um, just black history and the history of disenfranchisement, 
that's definitely an issue, especially because in a way our system is manipulated to put some people in our population in jail and some people not. And so when you can take away people's rights and dignities just because they've gone to prison when the system wasn't fair in the first place and um, based on who can go to prison, then it doesn't seem justified for you to be able to diminish them as humans after they've served their time or when they are serving their time. Um, but of course, we want to live in a world that's safe. Like we want to make sure we aren't encouraging crime or encouraging dangerous things. So I don't know. There's a whole issue of like, do we even need prisons? Do we need these punishments? But I don't know. I think it's something you could study your whole life and maybe not even figure out. Yeah, we definitely need prisons. But then it's like, okay, are we using prison as a way to correct behavior or are we using it as a punishment? And which one incites more violence? And that's something we definitely have to look at because of the, it's definitely pretty mind-boggling how America has a higher admission, a higher amount of people who are in prison than, I don't want to say, I think it's any other country in the world. I'll, I'll look it up and yeah. put stats back in here if I find it. Yeah, so I think that's something we're going to have to look at if we want to take this prison reform seriously. Something that... Kim Yassir also says, is COVID-19 makes it hard to connect with people and dealing with incarcerated people who have been released exacerbates the cold shoulder that a lot of people deal with in terms of being treated as a, as a person who broke the law instead of an actual person. So this is what she has to say about that. Um, I think, I think our courts completely fail at looking at how, um, the legal process impacts an individual's life. Um, So for people who are being held in prison pre-trial or being held in jail pre-trial, these are individuals who now have, if they had a job, they've lost it. If they had housing, they likely lost it. If they, and not to mention if they lost their housing while they were in jail, unless they had like, a loved one or friend who really um, was able to go and move their stuff out. They also lost all their possessions um, uh, and lose uh, in the, in the shuffle often lose their ID. So even for just uh, the time awaiting trial, people's lives get completely turned upside down. And then if the result of that trial is that they're found not guilty, um, what a waste, what a complete and utter waste of um, this human's um, time and energy and how frustrating for them to have to start all over from scratch. I think that reality is so often overlooked. Um, and and we, we don't think about the human experience. We only think about, in, like the way that the legal system is set up, only think about, um, you know, was this was this law broken? Um, and sometimes it's laws that cause that are you know reflective of significant harm that needs to be addressed. Um, and sometimes it's laws that um, that aren't quite uh, you know that the harm isn't 
isn't significant in that way and, and still turns someone's life upside down. And we also talked about the reform in prison systems and how that would actually work. And this is what she has to say about that. Quote, I think restorative practices have a lot to offer towards addressing harm within the community. Restorative practice outcomes are found to be more satisfying to victims and survivors, as well as the person responsible for the harm, because they have a voice and a say in the process of how to make things as right as possible. I look to organizations like Families for Justice as healing for guidance around additional alternatives to addressing harm in the community. They are an organization they are an organizing group led by formerly incarcerated women, and they have some great ideas for form ideas formed in the communities most impacted by policing practices and incarceration. And I think in general this topic isn't covered a lot. But with recent media and news, a lot of people are looking to change the way mass incarceration works in the U.S., at least, and possibly Canada, and use COVID-19 as a means to expose those problems. So Yasir works for an organization called Thrive. And what this is what Thrive does and how former prisoners are released into society. Our, our- model is called circles of support and accountability. We didn't come up with it. We've um, borrowed it from other places and taken it forward. It actually started in Canada in the nineties. But what we do is we match a returning citizen with three community volunteers uh, and they meet on a weekly basis through the transition back to the community, working through whatever challenges may come up being supportive community and also providing accountability when it's, when it's needed in life. Um, I think we all need um, forms of support and accountability in our lives. So these are different factors on how COVID-19 can exacerbate different problems with being reentered into society. So first there's housing pre and post COVID. Housing is, um, is probably the number one hardest uh, thing in reentry um, because you're coming, unless you had like a stockpile of money <laughs> before you were released, you are, you have um, so often very little to work with um, to get into to housing and the cost of living for like a single apartment is, is so high Um most of our our members um, our members who have like the most like success um, right off the bat um, have family that they can live with for a period of time. People who we have a, lo- a lot of people returning to homelessness, um, and so it takes them time to find something. Um, it's like the the job the between employment and housing the. Um, like which comes first in order to have enough stability that you can maintain both of those things um, during that, doing that while um, experiencing homelessness is, um, it, it's just this um, incredible burden that um, far too many people are experiencing in our, in our community. Um, and, uh, and then, and then the added hurdle of, um, when you're trying to get a house um, or somewhere to live, you have your credit issues potentially, and you have um, uh, the, the cost getting into it. And, um, 
those uh, just the credit issues are often um, uh, take, you know, credit takes a long time to get sorted out. So um, that's an, that's like an added on top of everything else. Um, and then, uh, and then their criminal history check as well. So those three things really are working against people getting housing. And um, uh, what we try to do is try to find places who we know will consider our members. Um, and, um, but it's a, it's a, it's the biggest challenge. My whole project, I mean, part of my project for laid laws about how all of it's about housing. Part of it's about how there's the discharge into homelessness from jails and how governments really need to be responsible for making sure that people have housing lined up once they come out. And there are a lot of amazing projects that have been done in Canada and the U.S. of just like moving someone from the prison to an independent apartment rather than letting them go navigate the system and more than likely end up in a state of homelessness. So I think that is a really good one, especially right now. We need to make sure people have housing and shelter. Yeah. A lot of people are released from prison into homelessness because life isn't put on pause when someone's incarcerated. So again, like COVID-19 has given us a sense of our lives being put on pause, but the legal system, it doesn't really work that way. They usually they usually come back to no jobs, which is also the next topic, and credit just being ruined, and isolation from their families. So we'll we'll get into that further down the list. So employment pre and post COVID, this is what she has to say about that. I think it's just even harder to find employment because everyone's looking for jobs or trying to make it um, financially. Uh, so it's just a lot more competitive and the places where, um, where there are opportunities, you know, there's also added risk, um, which a lot of our members aren't, um, I don't know, it's person to person, but a lot of our members aren't as worried about the risk because the, the day to day, like living is so difficult. Um, and so they're focused on, so many people are focused on, you know, how do I get through this moment um, where like COVID just feels like it's, it's kind of, this just this added thing um, for, a, for a number of our members. And they'd rather just kind of like move on and try to get something established. And finding Finding employment when you were formerly incarcerated was hard before, but now you're competing with a whole host of people who have lost their jobs due to COVID-19. And this is what she has to say about education. Are there a lot of people who are re-entering society looking to improve on their education? Is that an obstacle? That, y- yes, it is an obstacle. It usually is not the thing that people talk about in the first year, um, because at least that's been my experience. Um, it, uh, Wait, in the know, first year of going of back. Yeah. When they're back in the community, um, because in the, in the first year you're trying to, uh, people are often trying to figure out 
the um, just the basics and how to get by that the employment oftentimes, or sorry, the um, education is often um, can feel like an added um, or, or kind of like a privilege to be able to be able to, to even think about education when um, uh, when so many other things seem uncertain. So um, I'm finding that people start thinking about that in the second year. Um, they're in the community. So whether go, going on to the, um, get their GED um, or um, trying to figure out if there are higher education opportunities. And is that something that's readily available to them with, like, with technology? During COVID? Um, uh, well, <laughs> so we have two members that, have, that pre-COVID were working towards their GED and their courses have halted. Um, and, um, and it's, it seems like that, so that's just like our local experience that they didn't transition to virtual or they tried to transition and there was some technical difficulty in the process. Um, A lot of people were working towards their GEDs and at least locally in these communities, getting that certificate has been put on hold for many people because there aren't any in-person classes. And with technology, this is what she has to say. I think one of the one of the challenges when you're thinking about education in the time of COVID uh, is that uh, you know while incarcerated people are completely cut off from technology in a lot of ways, or at least cut off from it from the in meaningful ways. Um, you know there are some advances lately where there where people are able to use email. Um, but you know, knowing how to use a smartphone, knowing how to use um, use Zoom or um, any of those applications, uh, that would help uh, with uh, education. Um, those are all. That's all a learning curve. So on top of trying to learn uh, about um, uh, to, to learn what you need to learn for your GED, you're also um, working on this technology curve that you're trying to catch up on. Um, that's definitely something that we help people with, um, but it is, uh, you know, it is a, another another barrier. To put it in perspective, um, we have a member who um, has given me permission to share this this part of his story. Um, he was released and. Um, was in the car with a friend who was taking him home. And as, as they were driving down the street, he saw an empty phone booth and kind of like had heart palpitations because like, how am I going to contact my people, my friends? Um, how am I going to get in touch with people? Because, you know, if, if they're, if this phone booth is empty, what do I do where I don't have a phone? I don't know, you know, what do I do? Um, and, and so, like, for him, just learning how how to use a cell phone, not to mention a smartphone, <laughs> um, was a, a huge part of uh, his first few months is just how do I communicate with people. And so that's just on, like, a regular day in reentry. Um, so add to the challenges of COVID where a lot more is online, a lot more is virtual, um, you know, it just makes it so important for people to be able to plug in quickly 
um, in order to, to get, you know, even the mental health services they need, right? Um, not to mention everything else we, we've already t- touched upon. So being acclimated with technology is really important when you're being released from prison because a lot of people who have been released pre like this whole wave of technology has to learn how to use it. But now on top of that, they need to learn how to use it in order to get trials and have hearings and find jobs, find housing, find, find um, different educational programs just through online. So that's, that's really hard, especially when you actually need to now in a world where we're not, where it's dangerous to be in, in person, to be around each other physically and the mental health aspects. One of the benefits I think as our members have had an easier time getting to their services, if they, if they know how to use the platform, um, they've had an easier time um, connecting with their counselors. Um, a lot of, uh, in the prior to COVID, um, you know, a lot of people would miss appointments, um, just kind of getting the energy to get to the, the, the treatment, ha- like, and not to mention, like, being okay with whatever else they, they think they needed to have been able to do during that time. Maybe they had an opportunity to apply for a job or go to an interview. You know, there's all, re- all sorts of reasons why people don't attend treatment. I mean, therapy is hard, um, uh, especially if you're dealing with a lot of trauma, um, which almost everyone returning from incarceration is has experienced some degree of trauma um, and many times like significantly. So, um, so the, there is like this, it's, it's a lot easier to attend treatment when it's virtual. Um, but I, I can't speak to whether it's uh, how effective it is. If people are able to share deeply in those um, settings, I'm not sure. So there's a lot of loneliness and what Thrive does with their model of keeping them accountable is they pair them up with different community leaders, but now it's all online. So you can't even meet in person and have conversations with the people who are helping you get acclimated to your community. And there's a lot of loneliness. And when you're a lot of, a lot of people who are released opt to get therapy And I guess a benefit of this would be that there are more people who are actively going to therapy because they don't necessarily have to get transportation and it's easier to open up like that rather than be fully vulnerable. Right. And I can imagine going from a situation where you've been incarcerated for some significant period of time and then you're entering the world as a free person, but you're entering into a pandemic, mm-hmm. like all of the issues would just be exacerbated. So I think it's really important to have organizations like Thrive and other supports um, for these people making this difficult transition in an extremely difficult time. All right. So looking ahead, uh, we want to ask both the judges about how they think COVID will impact the future of the legal sector. And this is what Judge Lynn had to say. Well, I think that some screening is probably a good idea. I have a screen now, a plexiglass 
clear screen in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they put another one up on the bench where the lawyers come up and talk to me uh, during a trial when we have a bench conference. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good, good idea because um, I'm really close to them and they're really close to me and they're breathing in my face. Mm-hmm. I'm breathing in their face and none of us know what we've been exposed to. Mm-hmm. It's probably a good idea to minimize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want the jurors not to be able to engage in a real deliberative process. They, they, when they're keeping away from each other and wearing masks and gloves, I question whether they're having a real kind of conversation that is a meaningful aspect of what it means to have a trial by jury. Uh, so I don't know if we will ever return to business as usual, uh, but the jury trial is a marked distinction uh, between us and many other countries, and I love it and respect and honor it, and I want it to come back as close to what we had before as we can. Um, some of the things you and I discussed can be done remotely, and I think will be done remotely to save needless expense and cause less travel uh, for lawyers, which I think they will like better. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't want us to become an insular community and not travel the world like we all used to love to do. And Justice Manson has this to say. When you ask our Chief Justice and, and other judges on the court, how do we all see this unfolding? I think at the end of the day, it's going to be forever part of our procedure um, for access to justice. You're going to have more of the virtual um, Zoom type hearings. We will still have in-person hearings for complex cases because it's just easier um, in some regards than than not. But for the short hearings and hearings that aren't as complex, there's no question that this is now the wave of the future. Parties are going to learn to expect that as, again, one of your earlier points, rather than having to travel from coast to coast or from Europe or the United States to Canada, um, no, we can do this from wherever we are and we can do it effectively. So why would we spend that money? Why would we waste the time trying to make everybody come together in one place um, for a hearing? So I think I think that's the most significant impact is that uh, it, th- this type of hearing is here to stay. Uh, and whether it's mm-hmm. everything or part of a hybrid system or in some cases won't be appropriate because of the complexity of a case, um, that's the most significant fact or, or change. So, yeah, he was pretty certain that they're going to keep the technology as a central part of their proceedings. Um, and I think it's really interesting because like it just seems like the American judicial system doesn't really want to change very quickly. And like, it's kind of designed to be a stagnant part of our government. So the fact that this time has forced it to really change its ways and get up to speed with technology in such a short period of time is really interesting. And I wonder if uh, Justice Manson 
would have been saying that these three methods of having proceedings, whether it's hybrid, online, or in person, like I wonder if those three options would even become a thing in the near future if we hadn't had this crisis. I think you just put it perfectly. I don't have anything else to add to that. (laughs) All right. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. So we want to thank our interviewees. I want to especially thank Judge Lynn and Justice Manson for giving me their time and expertise. And I really appreciate everything they contributed to this episode. Yes. And I'd also like to thank my interviewee, Kim Yassir. And her, her, her organization, Thrive, has done a lot to help people or I should be more specific, um, for reformed convicts in Massachusetts get activate, get acclim, get acclimated into society. And she does a real service to her community and she recently had a baby. So congratulations to her. Yeah. And just thank you so much for participating in this episode. It really means a lot. And we also, as this is our final formal episode, Mm -hmm. we want to give a big thank you to the University of Toronto for sponsoring this project through the COVID-19 Student Engagement Award. I know I'm so grateful for being able to have done this during the summer when who knows how many people I would have talked to if I wasn't, if I didn't have an excuse to talk to them. And it allowed me to meet my three wonderful co-hosts and i'm very grateful so thanks u of t yeah thanks ufc this project was definitely something that okay that's too much i was gonna say change my life i mean well in ways in ways yeah i think this really make made me more aware of what's going on during this process instead of just being a passive observer because i would have never thought to research these topics on my own without this podcast and a purpose to share on this platform to more people who are in our in our age range and who are students so this really gave me an opportunity to become a more active member of society yes and we have more to talk about in that regard so stick around listen to our reflection episode in the coming weeks And yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's our sixth, aka six feet apart, six episodes. Oh my God. Yes. I love the links. Mm -mm. Yes. So now we have to do it. We have to do our sign off. Do you want us to do the same thing we did last time? Or like, maybe it'll be easier if we say it in unison because it's only two of us. Yes, that is a benefit of a smaller... All right. One, two, three. See you from six feet apart. Maybe not. Maybe someone should just say it once instead. Or maybe I should say, I'll I'll say, see you from, and then you say six feet apart. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. So we'll see you from six feet apart. Bye. Bye, guys. (laughs)